You're listening to episode 31 of the Physical Education Podcast. Today, returning guest Jay Feldman joins me to discuss the topic of hormesis, and which helps us shed light on why interventions like uh, ketogenic diets, intermittent fasting, and veganism might actually be counterproductive and working against your best interests. Hi, I'm P.A. Morant, and you're about to learn about the hidden and often misunderstood causes of chronic pain. For 15 years, I suffered with chronic pain with no cause or end in sight. I tried everything I could find, but was often left with unanswered questions and conflicting advice. So I decided to take matters into my own hands and to become a physical therapist. I studied everything I could about pain, about the body, and about health. Along the way, I realized that the solutions to my pain and health issues were within me. I didn't need someone to fix me. I needed to reclaim ownership of my body and fix myself. More importantly, I needed to fix myself while honoring and understanding my body's own wisdom and capacity for self-healing. Since then, I've worked on bringing this knowledge to others in pain, combining pain science, psychology, biomechanics, nutrition, and neurology to provide the light bulb moments and self-awareness to take control. Because eventually most people in pain realize they need to understand the bigger picture of what causes chronic pain. The purpose of this podcast is to help you see and navigate that bigger picture so that you can finally reclaim control of your health and overcome pain once and for all. Hi folks, we've got Jay Feldman on today, back for his second uh, episode to discuss uh, all things hormesis. Jay, how are you? I'm good, PA. How are you doing? Great. Um, I suppose we'll get straight into it. We had your intro, sort of your background, how you came to do what you do in the last episode. So I would encourage people to listen to that first. But um, today we're going to talk about the topic of hormesis, which is sort of, it's a very important concept that underpins many, many, so many health recommendations and ideologies. And so many things are sort of contingent on hormesis being true or hormesis being what people claim it is. And you wrote um, a series of two articles that really picked apart the whole theory of hormesis, the theory, the um, flaws with the research and how it applies to a lot of common health recommendations. So to kind of get us started, maybe you could define the term hormesis for the purpose of this podcast. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So hormesis is something that's not talked about as much in the mainstream, but uh, people who are looking more in depth at the research and the science um, are talking more about it. And, and yeah, it's definitely a pretty, I don't know, uh, kind of a fundamental feature of, of a lot of different health paradigms. But uh, yeah, so to define it, I would just say it's basically the idea that a small amount of stress um, caused by something in our environment, which could include something we eat or, or anything, you know, anything else that we're doing, uh, a small amount of stress causes a defensive reaction in our body that ends up being beneficial for our health. And there's all sorts of applications from there, but that's kind of the simplest definition. Okay. And would would you be happy going straight into the likes of where you see the flaws? So basically, how did it get to this point where people believe that hormesis is beneficial? Is Do you feel like it's just a misunderstanding of the research um maybe but i think i mean it's it's got a kind of a long history and even that definition isn't you know has kind of morphed over time um and even saying you know a small amount of stress that causes benefits is kind of arbitrary because 
what some researchers want, what some researchers are calling a small amount of stress, I definitely wouldn't say is a small amount. Um, so that's all relative. But the idea being that stress or damage causes benefits, it's it, this idea started um, maybe about 70 years ago, or at least really kind of started gaining momentum at that point, yeah. um, where the idea was that small amount of damage caused by a really kind of toxic agent would cause some amount of benefit. Um, so they were looking at very small amounts of cadmium or arsenic or, or very or methyl mercury, um, like very, very things that we know to be very toxic and um, like irradiation as well. And so they're looking at these things and some researchers found or think that they found that small amounts of these things caused uh, improvements in health and reductions in cancer and things like that. Um, which was the opposite effect is what they knew happened at a larger dose. And that's kind of where it started. It was, it was, um, that was kind of what some of the research found and, and maybe we'll talk about that research and why it didn't end up being all that valid. Um, but from there it expanded and became a defense from industries against people who are concerned about pollution, um, or radiation exposure and, and basically saying, well, Hey, small amounts of these things aren't so bad. Um, they maybe are even beneficial. And so this, it kind of started from that point, which is uh, a relatively dangerous, I would say, um, perspective to have when we're talking about, you know, these industries potentially polluting or, you know, polluting the environment and affecting our health with radiation or, or different heavy metals or whatever it is. And, uh, yeah, it, it kind of progressed from there and, and more recently became more associated with, kind of regular everyday stresses that we experience. Um, so caloric restriction is one of the things that's one of the interventions that's studied a lot in the research as far as something that's supposed to have health benefits. And I'm sure we'll talk about that too and why it's not as beneficial or what might be accounting for those benefits because it's not simply <laughs> restricting calories. Yeah. Um, and so that kind of ended up falling under this idea of hormesis where the caloric restriction, for example, was causing stress, and that then led to, you know, and then we know the outcome was in increased lifespan or something like that. So uh, that's kind of how it ended up morphing into something that now is is being, is, is kind of the thing that, that a lot of different interventions are attributed to. So caloric restriction is one, but also ketogenic diets and cold thermogenesis and different uh, supplements like resveratrol or, um, I don't know, there, there's several others. So a lot of those things have now been lumped into this hormesis category, this idea that these things call small, cause small amounts of stress, and then that stress results in some sort of benefit. And even more recently, it's actually been, uh, you know, they're starting to attribute really kind of mundane, I don't know, like regular everyday things that we know are beneficial, like certain vitamins and minerals mm. and water and like just like basic needs. They attribute these also to hormesis, um, basically suggesting that these things cause stress and that's why they're beneficial and not for some other reason, like that they yeah. fulfill some need or requirement that we have for a certain nutrient. Okay. And so just going back to, you mentioned how this was, this sort of idea was initially uh, discovered, say, uh, roughly 70 years ago. You, do you think that it was just a misinterpretation and then it was capitalized upon by industries that could spin it as actually these substances aren't that bad and they may be beneficial? Or do you feel like there was foul play from, from the beginning? Could you explain how the research was misinterpreted? Yeah, so 
I would like to think the former. I don't know. Hmm. Um, I don't know the specific intent of the original researchers coming across this. And so, yeah. if their what if their intent was, hey, we need to find a reason why these pollutants aren't so bad. If yeah. we need, you know, that then maybe it, there was foul play from the start. Sure. Um, if so, I'm not aware of it. But I do know that the research, the, you know, those initial researchers are very much in favor of or are very much defending the pollution and radiation exposure and things like that. So it wouldn't surprise me if there was something like that going on. Um, so I, yeah, I'm not sure if it was kind of an organic finding or if it was subsidized by some of these, uh, industries, but I don't know. I don't know how, yeah. I mean, I don't, yeah, I guess I don't have the best answer there, but sure, either one is, fine. either one is perfectly possible. Yeah. And so then researchers nowadays that would be, um, using, information on hormesis to to explain health benefits do you feel like they simply don't understand the history of it that they haven't looked deep enough or that they're perhaps ignoring the unfavorable information and only focusing on what appears favorable yeah i don't know specifically you know what again what anyone yeah, might sorry. think but but as far as my conjecture i mean sure. it's the history alone isn't a reason to discount the idea, right? So it definitely has a history that I would say is nefarious, although a lot of people would say it isn't, you know, that that it had nothing to do with the industry funding and it had more to do with, you know, some organic finding that was scientifically valid and, and then it just had these certain applications. But, um, yeah, I mean, the history alone doesn't invalidate it, but it's definitely a cause for um, skepticism, for sure. And I think that I think that most research are, re researchers now are probably aware of that, but I think it's more that it's, that is the current researchers are more of morphing the idea to fit their current paradigm and it, mm. they do go hand in hand. So I do think a lot of researchers now don't realize that by kind of morphing hormesis into an idea that sounds more valid, they're also supporting those sort of potentially dangerous, um, underpinnings i don't yeah i don't i don't know if that's necessarily the thought process there i would yeah. expect it's not sure yeah i often wonder in terms of um because a lot of these um things like intermittent fasting keto all that kind of stuff tends to be kind of or appears to be spearheaded by an instagram guru some sort of figure in the world of health and i wonder if they try things and feel some sort of short-term benefit and then they look for the evidence that supports it rather than they just look at a pool of evidence and then come up with a health strategy. It seems like it's more reverse engineered or trying to fit the data to your lived experience, uh, which, um, which would be a flawed way of doing things. Um, so that, that's what I suspect happens a lot of the time because people have all sorts of, um, all sorts of their own stuff, we'll say, and all sorts of their own insecurities, and they're just looking for you know maybe a slimmer body and then they yeah they they fit the data to uh to uh, support their um their experience so maybe we could maybe we could take something like uh, a ketogenic diet and pick apart the claims maybe i'll be the keto person in this you can i'll play devil's advocate and we could pick apart um the flaws with that so Let's see. The, the the major claims, what would be the major claims of a ketogenic diet? That you're restricting carbohydrates and you're... 
What would you say are the major claims? <laughs> well, it's, it's funny because when I was in that place where I yeah. was doing things like ketogenic diets, I definitely fell into that latter category you were talking about where it was, it was kind of diet first and then all the information second. Mm. Um, so it's just funny that that happens because, yeah, when I was, you know, when I was in that place, I was able to parrot all the things that it was supposed to do, you know, be, because it, it's supposed to, you know, improve insulin sensitivity because carbohydrates are the cause of diabetes and therefore cause insulin resistance. And so, um, you know, lacking a you know, reduction in carbs is supposed to improve insulin sensitivity. And because of that, it's supposed to increase, you know, improve body composition, lead to fat loss, because that's, again, only a product of insulin, which is, I would say, like, a minor side point, or I mean, even an important thing, I just don't think that insulin causes fat gain. I think that's pretty clear uh, in the research. Yeah. But yeah, so there's claims like that keto diets improve insulin sensitivity because carbs um, increase insulin resistance. There's claims that, um, I don't know, things like that any amount of glucose in our system leads to the, like damage to DNA and lipid peroxidation and things because glucose can uh, create ages which is just like an oxidized uh, sugar with a protein. And there's, there's a lot of, I don't know, details there. But, but so things like that, um, that improves mitochondrial respiration because we're supposed to be fueled by fat because, you know, when we starve, fat is our, is our primary fuel. So that, for, <laughs> that supposedly means that um, that's the ideal fuel for our, our health at, you know, when we're not starving. Yeah. Uh, I think those are some of the main claims that at least that come to mind. Sure. And so, would in terms of uh, hormesis, would because when when we burn fat, or in order to burn fat, when we've run out of uh, of glycogen out of sugar, there is a release of stress hormones, and is that where hormesis would be used to defend ketosis? As in, actually, stress hormones aren't bad because hormesis is good. Would that be fair to say? Would that be a likely claim? Yeah, very much on the surface, but I don't think most people who are saying it actually realize that that's what they're saying. They're typically looking at a deeper level on the cellular level where they're looking at reactive oxygen species production and increases in autophagy and things like that, which we can, you know, if we don't want to dig into at the second, that's fine. But mm -hmm. I think those are more of, they're, they're looking at that in-depth part and seeing those as beneficial without an understanding of the greater context sure. of things like increases in stress hormones that would come with those in this case. Um, and so that's more of where it comes from. So those, those things I listed off the autophagy and mitochondrial biogenesis, those are adaptations to stress. They're also adaptations that happen when we aren't stressed, but, um, those are things that do happen when we're stressed because they basically improve our defenses against stress. And so those are things that are cited as, as hormetic, um, or as, as why ketogenic diets are horm hormetics. And, and, and so the reason why that is, is again, does come back to things like uh, stress hormones and, and energy production. Yeah. As far as the hormesis goes, they are looking at fat, fat oxidation and increases in fatty acids are associated with things like autophagy. Um, that's, that's a huge one, uh, is people encouraging fasting because it increases autophagy. Um, and same thing with mitochondrial biogenesis or uncoupling is another one where all those things are associated with fat oxidation, which is associated with ketogenic diets. Um, but they aren't actually beneficial like they're said to be, at least not in that context. It's it's all contextual, and those sure. those things are adaptive, and because of that, they have benefits. But but uh, 
that only goes so far. Yeah. And so could you expand on on the influence of context then? At, at what point does it become beneficial and at what point is it actually counterproductive? Yeah. So the the point the distinction of whether it's beneficial or not beneficial is actually determined before the adaptation happens, if that makes sense. So if we're looking at this on, on the cellular level, when we have something like ketosis going on, it increases reactive oxygen species production. And that leads to uncoupling and autophagy and mitochondrial biogenesis is just a few of the adaptive effects. And the reason why or in that state, it's th this is going on in the state in the context of a low energy state. And the reason for that is because there's different ways that we can produce that reactive oxygen species can become produced in the mitochondria. And so when it's a result of fat oxidation, it has to it has to do with changes in in the electron transport chain essentially it's it's there, there's specific things so a change in the nad to nadh ratio and fadh2 to nadh ratio those sorts of things lead to reactive oxygen oxygen species production in the mitochondria and that's what's going on in a low energy state so in that state we have low energy production and energy production gets blocked and that causes reactive oxygen species production, and then leads to all these adaptive effects. And on the other hand, the other scenario where we have this, these same effects going on is in a high energy state. Because when we have a lot of energy, it essentially kind of blocks up the chain and stops energy production from happening or slows it down. And that's, again, it's, it's an adaptive thing. Uh, because if we have a lot of energy you know, in our cells, we don't need to keep producing more. It's essentially wasteful and, and can potentially be damaging. Um, so when this happens, it slows down energy production. And one of the ways it does that is by producing reactive oxygen species. And so this is a way of us putting the brakes on energy production um, and also leads to things like autophagy and mitochondrial biogenesis. But in this case, it's because we have all this excess energy and it's kind of like we can re it's like a rebuilding and repairing process. Whereas in the other case, in the ketogenic state, it's more of a defensive reaction to better deal with stress. And so the main differences there are one is the high energy state and one is the low energy state. And that also influences the like the health of the cell. So in the high energy state, we're protected against any sort of damage or, or considerably protected against damage from reactive oxygen species because of the high ATP and the high carbon dioxide. Whereas in the low energy state, we're not protected. We're not protected from those things. So that can lead to lipid damage and DNA damage and protein damage. Yeah. Um, so we have in one state, it's it's the same kind of effect, but in one case, it's a defensive reaction to better deal with stress. In the other case, it's an effect of excess energy, not in a bad way, but in a good way, which allows us to repair and rebuild. Okay. And, and how would you define a high energy state? Is it dependent on certain macronutrients or is it dependent purely on calories or for, for, um, for sort of the lay person? Um, what do you need to eat, so to speak, or how much do you need to eat to be in a high energy state? Yeah, well, we definitely like there are certain requirements. So we need yeah. to be eating enough for sure. Um, and we need to make sure we're having enough carbohydrates because of the differences between the way that we use fats and carbs as a fuel. Uh, basically, fats lead to a slowing of energy production. They lead to this reactive oxygen species production, and that ends up causing problems and not leading to a high energy state. So we need enough calories and we need enough carbs but it's not that simple either because there are other things that kind of that can prevent us from producing energy from the foods that we're eating and that can be something like 
uh, PUFA or polyunsaturated fats, or it can be all sorts of different toxins that we can produce in our gut, like endotoxin or ammonia, um, or it can be heavy metals that we're exposed to, like mercury or arsenic, or it can be you know ionizing radiation um, that can also inhibit that. So there's all sorts of other factors we have to consider that would potentially prevent us from getting to that high energy state. Yeah. Okay. So if someone were, say, very low carb, but they avoided polyunsaturated fats, they, they avoided endotoxin, they avoided um, heavy metal poisoning, mm-hmm. they, would be, they wouldn't be in as bad of a position. So these are, I, I suppose this, this gets down to the nuance of everything. It's not keto versus carbs. It's the individual who maybe happens to do keto and other things, but we're kind of focused on the keto part or the carb part. So it is far more, far more nuanced than um, carbs or no carbs. But yeah, so a person who maybe avoids carbs but does everything else right isn't maybe necessarily going to see the downsides of avoiding carbs as quickly. Would that be fair to say? Um, I would say that they would probably feel better in the short term. Yeah. But I, I would wonder whether they would get to that long term faster because... When we're in, again, it's all it's all so individual and mm. contextual. Yeah. Um, but when we're in kind of a low energy state, a depressed state, um, like our thyroid function is depressed, our metabolism is lower, we can do okay in that state for a long time. Um, it's kind of like a hibernating state. And so someone might be able to live longer and actually feel better on that versus you know, maybe let's say a low carb diet where they don't have any. So, so that first one they would have, let's say PUFA would be something that would be blocking them from producing enough energy. Um, and that kind of keeps their metabolism low. Whereas if you have someone who's on low carb and the only thing preventing them from really getting that energy up is not having enough fuel in the, in the case of carbohydrates that could cause more stress in a faster period of time, potentially. Um, so saying which is better and which is worse is, is a tough call, but I would definitely say that um, we want to make sure that we're getting those other things right. But I do, I do think that carbs are pretty, are kind of a requirement. Um, at least some, at least some amount for, mm. to fuel the nervous system, because I don't see any other way that, that, um, that we can get to that high energy state without them. Cause when we produce the carbs ourselves, like if we don't eat them, our body needs them so badly that they'll convert protein to carbs, mm. um, mm. in order to produce you know, in order to use carbohydrates, but that co- requires all this stress to go on. Yeah, uh, and causes and ends up depressing the metabolism. Sure, like that, further. That's often something you'll hear is it, that that statement can be flipped either way depending on which camp you're in. They'll say <laughs> you don't need carbs because you'll just make your own, uh, yeah. ignoring the fact that you know it's it's quite a stressful process. Um, and so I think one really important concept that you mentioned in part two of your of the series was this idea that essentially you're drawing from this one pool of energy. Um, so all stress is sort of, sort of cumulative and we can't really separate from uh, one to the other. Could you expand on that, basically how we cope with stress? Yeah, yeah. and and. So as far as hormesis goes, there's this idea that there's the right amount of stress and anything less or anything more is problematic. Um, but one thing that's often not considered is the, the fact that, yeah, all of this is cumulative. And so we have, you know, we have this energy that we produce and that's what's used to deal with any 
stress or anything that's requiring the usage of energy. So whether we're just thinking and having a conversation or whether we're walking outside or running or digesting our food, all of those things require energy. And so they're all drawing from that same energy supply, that same pool. Yeah. And when we're, I think that's one of the biggest um, flaws in the hormetic model is that in almost all of the applications, it's the, the fact that it's cumulative isn't really considered. So, you know, if you take the idea that someone who is not doing too hot, like maybe, you know, they're, they're obese or really overweight or they have diabetes or whatever it is. Um, the idea that we would want to increase their stress with something like ketosis and that that's going to be beneficial because of, because of hormesis typically isn't accounting for the fact that this person is already under a considerable amount of stress, like physiological stress, uh, even if they're not psychologically stressed. Um, and that's evident by the fact that they're not, you know, that they're not, um, producing energy very well. And so they're, they're in this obese state, um, that leads to dysregulation of hunger and and things like that. So, um, so, so that all that is evidence that they're already excessively stressed. And so the idea that we want to add stress onto that kind of ignores the fact that the stress is cumulative and we're, we're not, if it, if they weren't benefiting from the amount of stress they were currently under, they're not going to benefit from more. Mm. So, you know, um, a typical approach with someone who's obese, for example, would be caloric restriction. Mm-hmm. And the supposed benefit of that would be uh, a hormetic mechanism. Is that, that what the average personal trainer or doctor is claiming? Uh, I would say that's what the researchers are claiming. Okay. Um, I think there's probably a disconnect there. I mean, I, I do think that the average doctor or personal trainer isn't really aware of what hormesis is. Um, and that's because it's it's a relatively complex topic, but it does seep into all these other areas. Hmm. Um, but yeah, so that's essentially the idea is that that stress of caloric restriction is is going to benefit this person on, on the deeper level. Um, but the mistake there is that somebody who is um, obese isn't dealing with a lack of stress. They have an, an excessive amount of stress mm. and that's because they have a lack of energy. Yeah. And there's this assumption that if you're obese, it's because you have all this extra energy. So you just keep storing it. Yeah. But what's actually happening is that we're storing that, that energy you're storing that fuel because we can't convert it to energy. That process is blocked. And yeah. so that means that we have an even smaller pool to draw from and even an even smaller energy supply. So we're getting more and more stressed out from everyday things. And then to add any sort of stress on top of that is is just icing on the cake. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, it makes it that much worse. Um, sure. So, yeah, so I would say the answer is kind of the opposite, where we really want to be reducing stress in that scenario or yeah. really in any scenario. Okay. And there's actually, you, you've got great, um, you kind of go down a rabbit hole with, with, with your articles. It's like, read this and read that. And you're, you're kind of expanding on many things. And, and one of them that we should probably cover is, the rate of living theory, because this is one I certainly hear a lot about, and I imagine it's um, it's partly why some people would recommend that your metabolism be slowed down. Um, mm-hmm. Could you maybe give us a bit of a background on what the rate of living theory is and where it came yeah. from? Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's a relatively outdated theory, but the the kind of older idea is that the fast, you know, it's kind of thinking of us as machines and the faster we run the machine, the faster the machine breaks down and, and mm. no longer functions. Yeah. Um, and I think that sort of oversimplification in this case is, is, I mean, it's a pretty flawed one. I mean, it's, it's, it, it is the problem, but, yeah. 
yeah, so there, so that was kind of the idea. And then some of the support for this ended up being things like caloric restriction. We're showing that caloric restriction improved lifespan and we know that caloric restriction reduces the metabolism. So that means that reduced metabolism equals longer lifespan. Okay. Yeah. And there's a bunch of issues with that caloric restriction research because, uh, I mean, there's, there's a few main ones. So one is that in these studies, normally what they're doing is they're looking at uh, rats who are eating as much as they want versus match uh, versus rats that are calorically restricted. Uh, and so the control is eating as much as you want as opposed mm. to some sort of like regular controlled diet. Yeah. And so normally what happens is the ones who can eat as much as they want get really, really overweight. And relative to that, the caloric restriction ones are doing pretty well. Yeah. Um, but that's that's not really relevant to like it's not really in a, a, a fair control. Mm. So uh, that's kind of – and they found actually that the difference in weight gain between that – supposed control and the intervention, which is the caloric restriction, accounts for the lifespan extension. So it's not actually a function of the caloric restriction itself. It's just that the other rats are gaining so much weight that they're, that's reducing their lifespan. Yeah. Um, and then there's a couple other things too, where when they control for certain amino acids, uh, like methionine, for example, just restricting methionine alone is able to, is able to cause the same reduction in, or the same increase in lifespan yeah. as caloric restriction as a whole. Mm. And there, there's a few other things like that too. So uh, that's kind of one of the more uh, like, like one of the common supports for the rate of living theory. And it's uh, really not valid at all. Um, and there's, there's a couple other things too, basically just looking at associations between lifespan and, and metabolic rate, but they aren't, they aren't really playing out the way that it was thought. So it is seen where between different species, the ones that have the higher metabolic rate do normally um, age the fastest, but it's not considering like within a species. So within the same species, it's been shown the opposite, where the one where the individual that has a higher metabolic rate actually lives longer. So the opposite is shown, yeah. um, and that difference between species has been accounted for by uh, other factors that actually have to do with the type of fats that we have in like in our cells, and so the more unsaturated the fats the higher the metabolic rate technically and the shorter the lifespan. But the reason for the faster metabolic rate is because we're less efficient with our energy in that case. So animals that have more unsaturated fats in their cells essentially um, are less efficient with their energy so they waste a lot of energy. Hmm. So it's not that's why you see that difference between species but not within a species because within a species – they're typically the same efficiency and the ones that have more energy live longer, essentially the ones that use more energy live longer. Yeah. So when we take that factor out, there's no, there's no relationship there. And in reality, the relationship has, is showing the opposite. Yeah. So you would argue that health is health involves or includes a high rate of metabolism. Yeah. 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 And that is how is that achieved? Is that achieved by restricting calories or not restricting calories? <laughs> well, that so that's something that's not <laughs> that's not a thought or not disagreed upon that much. People, you know, it's pretty much acknowledged that caloric yeah. restriction, you know, restricting calories reduces the metabolism. Yeah, and that's that's pretty clear. So, but, but you you would almost imagine that the opposite is believed to be true with how much how much caloric restriction seems to be recommended. Um, yeah. Maybe this is too much of a tangent. Yeah, it's probably too much of a tangent. So uh, there was one thing you brought up there, which might be a nice segue into something like veganism. But you mentioned the uh, amino acids being restricted, being removed. 
um, improving the lifespan. So could that be potentially why veganism may appear to be beneficial on some level? That there is a restriction on harmful amino acids? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that is actually used for, you know, a lot of vegetarians or vegans will use the, some of those studies as evidence that mm. if you restrict these certain amino acids, which are found in animal foods, um, they're also found in plant foods too. But, um, you know, if you restrict, and it's, it's not just methionines, like methionine, cysteine, and tryptophan are, are the three um, mm. most prominent ones. And so they are found a lot in animal foods. And so they say, oh, well, those, you know, those things we know that they're problematic and um, so we shouldn't eat animal foods. But one thing that's also included in animal foods, if you're eating the the whole animal, is amino acids that balance those out. So like lysine and proline um, are pretty powerful ones that have an antagonistic relationship with those other amino acids. And those are – so these – like the glycine and the proline, these are found in connective tissue. So in bones and uh, meats that are tougher that we would cook like slower, so like roasts and um, – uh, th- meats like that yeah. uh, or like in collagen or gelatin so people are pretty familiar with those as as like protein powders um, yeah. so those sorts of things they have amino acids that kind of balance out those other ones and if you're eating a balanced amino acid profile from that perspective then you don't have to worry about those effects of the methionine and cysteine and yeah. And, yeah. and again that that sort of highlights the point of the importance of nuance because some people will just say our meat's fine and they'll just obviously ignore the stuff that that points to meat not being ideal and then the vegans and the vegetarians will say well clearly meat's bad and it causes this but there's a degree of truth perhaps to both sides and you you actually need to kind of look at the data rather than start from a biased point of view start from i love steaks therefore i'm going to find all the data that allows me to eat steaks or i love puppies (laughs) and cows and i'm going to find the data that makes me feel good about myself for not eating cows. So yeah, I think that that might be the point of this whole whole discussion um, is is ultimately that once you get down into it and once you really kind of pick things apart, um, it's much more subtle than, than one might think. Um, so where would be another element that you, well, do you think that the sort of sort of inadvertent restriction of calories through veganism might actually be counterproductive yeah i mean i think any any caloric restriction is going to be counterproductive for sure um but it would appear to be good because some people would think that caloric restriction increases lifespan yeah i mean so in the research caloric restriction is like well known as the kind of most consistent intervention at having mm. these sorts of benefits. Yeah. Um, and they go beyond life, lifespan expansion, ex, extension too. There's other supposed benefits that, again, can be accounted for by the changes in amino acids and other things like that. Um, and so another kind of interesting feature of the research is that a lot of uh, lifespan, lifespan extension research is done on this, uh, this small worm, microscopic worm called C. elegans. And the, this research you know, they do all these things that show an expansion or an extension of, of their lifespan, but many of them don't account for the fact that this lifespan extension occurs because these little worms, they're kind of going into a hibernation state. Hmm. And in this hibernation state, this hibernation state basically mimics the effects on us too, where they stop using glucose as a fuel. 
Um, a lot of the metabolic respiration slows down. They aren't properly, you know, they're not properly producing energy at the electron transport chain, all sorts of things like that. And it essentially makes them dysfunctional, like that, like they aren't able to deal with the regular environment. But in the laboratory, they're able to continue living. And so in a study that's looked at as a benefit, it's like, oh, you know, they're able to live longer. And that's what we were looking at is how, you know, if this yeah. intervention will increase lifespan and it does. But sure. they don't consider that is because of this very dangerous hibernation state where the animal wouldn't exist and wouldn't be able to continue living if it wasn't in this, these very specific, you know, this very specific environment. So uh, that's just kind of another flaw there. Yeah. So <laughs> I don't remember exactly how yeah. that related back to your question, but um, but so the, that would be sort of like pointing to someone saying, "Look, we've kept him alive for five years, but he's been in a vegetative state, or you know, it's yeah, exactly. it's focusing too much on the number, the lifespan. I've lived a hundred years, uh, but maybe there were terrible years, and so you need to need to consider that." Um, yeah. So yeah, the, the the question was sort of going back to veganism, and a lot of people maybe they feel benefits or they think veganism is good because you're getting fewer calories and fewer calories is associated with uh, um, increased lifespan and you were explaining the um, the flaws with the research uh, mm -hmm. that are done on microscopic worms um, so I suppose we could move on to probably one of the, the big sacred cows of the moment in nutrition would be intermittent fasting so how would you debunk <laughs> or discredit uh, a lot of the claims uh, around intermittent fasting yeah um yeah it's, it is definitely a big one so <laughs> some of the benefits i would say one of the most prominent ones uh, that's that are attributed to intermittent fasting is autophagy so that's that's a big one and we kind of already touched on that and yeah. why the context matters a lot there um but so so things like that like autophagy and mitochondrial biogenesis those are seen in fasting and um, you know, I explained why that's not a good thing. It's because it's a result of this low energy state. Hmm. Um, there's, yeah, and, and I think part of the reason why it's gained a lot of traction too is because people do feel better on it, even though it's not the most comfortable thing to do. So, yeah. um, and I think that a lot of that can be attributed to the effects of intermittent fasting on our guts. I think it's actually a, a really great example of it because when we're not eating anything, there's nothing to cause any sort of gut irritation. So if our gut is not functioning very well, which most people's aren't, then when they eat the foods that they typically eat, which encourage these issues anyways, um, they end up with a lot of different uh, problems. They, they, there's different toxins that get produced by the bacteria in the gut when we have different gut imbalances or we're not digesting our food well and things like that. And so those can be really problematic for a lot of people. They are really problematic. I think it's one of the more common issues. And so when we're doing something like inter intermittent fasting, it does reduce all of that, like everything related to those gut problems um, because you're not eating for a much longer period of the day. But, and so I would say that that's, that's like the biggest thing that accounts for the benefits of intermittent fasting more than anything else. Um, so when people do feel really good on, on, an intermittent fat, like when they are intermittent fasting, I would say that instead of intermittent fasting, which we know is stressful, um, because we have to fuel ourselves on, you know, in this kind of starvation state with mostly fats and produce carbs through the release of cortisol and adrenaline and things like that. Um, 
a much better option would just be to eat a diet that you digest really well, that doesn't cause any of that irritation, doesn't cause that digest or, uh, toxin production, and then also restoring gut function in the first place. Yeah. Uh, I think those are much better routes and <clears throat> cause a lot less stress, and so they're a lot more beneficial in the long run. Yeah. And so I think you mentioned this in the article, but if someone does feel benefit from intermittent fasting, it suggests that the benefit of getting less gut irritation outweighs the downside of reduced energy. So again, that, that ties into that nuance. Maybe the gut issues are so bad that it's preferable to go through that. It's preferable to avoid the gut issues uh, than to... Um, yeah, than to have uh, enough energy. Um, yeah, well, those—I mean, those gut issues are kind of what contributes to that low energy. So I think in, in someone who is benefiting from intermittent fasting, I would say that their low ener- the, their lack of energy is more due to gut irritation or gut toxin production than it is due to the extra stress from the, the intermittent fasting. So if they are doing it and they have an increased energy demand from that fasting, from that lack of food and all the stress that comes with it, that must be better than what was being caused before by all those gut toxins. Yeah. Um, so in both cases, you have low energy. It's just a question of which is causing that low energy, like sure. more than the other. But obviously, the better option would just be to to do things that increase our energy production, increase our energy supply, and doesn't come with that stress or the gut toxins. Yeah. And in terms of gut irritation, how individual is that is does bacteria come into play does do food sensitivities come into play or are there certain ones because i know some people will say i can eat anything i feel fine um are there certain gut irritants that everyone is susceptible to uh there is definitely variation there and i think so part of that has to do with where our digestive functions at so we produce all sorts of different digestive enzymes. We produce bile. And we have stomach acid production. And all of those different things allow us to digest our food. And so one person might not be producing enough bile, and that might result in them not being able to digest fats very well. Whereas somebody else, you know, maybe they aren't producing enough lactase, so they aren't digesting milk very well. Um, and so, it, you know, one, that one, you know, one person might be, do fine with milk and the other wouldn't, and vice versa with the fats. Um, so those, so that gut function side is definitely individual, and so is what you were mentioning as far as what bacteria are present, um, whether there's any sort of overgrowth, and whether it's bacteria or fungal, fungal, or um, you know, there's all sorts of different kind of gut issues we can have, and so those things are definitely individual. But I would say there's also a pretty decent amount of foods that are going to be universally problematic. Hmm. Um, so like grains that aren't traditionally prepared. So if they're not soaked and sprouted, if they're not um, fermented, then they're pretty likely to cause problems for most people. And if somebody doesn't notice it, I think that a lot of times people don't notice that they have any problems with foods um, because it's just constant and it's all that they know or all that they experience. But then when they take out grains, for example, and then bring them back in, a lot of times they'll notice that difference. Um, So yeah, I think grains are, are a big one or beans and legumes are another one. And of course, these are things that are conventionally considered to be pretty healthy. Um, but because of their defensive anti-nutrients, which prevent, you know, these are seeds of the plants and they don't want to be eaten because of that. It's really important for the plants reproduct- reproduction in order for them to continue to survive. 
So they have all sorts of defensive compounds in the seeds that prevent them from being digested well and deter people or animals or whatever wants to eat them from continuing to eat them. So seeds, nuts, grains, legumes, and beans are pretty universally problematic, I would say. Yeah. Okay. So would it be fair to say that anyone who who is getting benefits from intermittent fasting, because I'm sure that people will listen to this and say, well, it works for me. Would it be fair to say that it's realistically, it will catch up with them? It's not a, a, a healthy strategy, but they're getting away with it for uh, for now. Yeah, I, th- I think that most people in those on those sorts of diets, um, it's similar to I think a low carb or ketogenic approach, where people do really well a lot of times for a period of time, and then they there's a crash that typically comes. It happens a lot of times on veganism too, mm. um, through a different route, but yeah, but the but the crash oftentimes come because comes because we're not getting certain nutrients that we need. Um, and in the case of intermittent fasting, it's less about nutrients because you might be eating the exact same foods, but that stress caused by not eating is still going to be there and that's still going to take its toll over time. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, I, I think so for the, for the most part, I, I can't see any way why, like I can't see any way that what it based on the physiological response to not eating for that long of a period of time. Like I, I can't see a way where that's not going to lead to deterioration and depressed metabolism and depressed function over time. Mm. And as you said earlier, it might happen slower than if they weren't intermittent fasting. So if you're eating the same diet um, that's not doing too well for your gut and you eat it during a shorter window versus a longer window, maybe that shorter window is better in the long term. I don't know. But uh, I would say that you don't need to be eating in the shorter window if you change the yeah. type of foods you're eating. So maybe you could just have a more enjoyable life. Where yeah, yeah. <laughs> just eat. <laughs> okay, yeah. The way I I, I always kind of think about it is that because I I did all this stuff. I, I think you did a lot of this stuff as well. I did intermittent fasting, all that low carb, and things caught up with me pretty quickly. Like I was probably no more than a year into some of these things, and they really caught up. And I know people who are doing these things for a few years, but the way I think about it is like health is sort of on on this scale. And the higher you are, the closer you are to so-called perfect health, the more leeway you have and the more you can just kind of chip away at it and not notice. So there's maybe a bit of a blessing in terms of starting with pretty poor health. That, you know, <laughs> yeah. the, the issues with these things become apparent quicker and you're quicker to, to realize the error uh, in your ways. Um, so again, that kind of highlights the point that it's all coming from this one pool of energy and your individual circumstances are going to uh, are going to play into it. So you might have a, a lot of resilience, you might have good energy stores, you might have everything else in your life um, tuned in really well. But because you're restricting carbs, you're going to have energy issues. Because you're fasting, you're going to have stress issues. Um, and this is um, I'm rambling a bit now, but I when I uh, you look at someone like Joe Rogan. And he kind of, he, um, you know, influences so many people. And I think a lot of people look to him for health advice. And I feel like he's getting away with it because, because he's getting away with it. Because maybe he has more resources and because maybe he has a job he loves and maybe he has no financial worries. And you need to consider these things. Because and some exogenous testosterone too. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if, if I don't think I don't think he's quiet about that. I yeah, think he's yeah, yeah. I think pretty open. I, I don't know if he's still doing it. I have no idea. I don't follow yeah. his 
his health side that quickly or that closely, but I know he at least was and mm. he was a pretty yeah. big proponent of it. And yeah, point being, it's the it's the the problem with looking to someone you don't know or you you don't understand their circumstances or you don't even consider the relevance of their circumstances and saying, well, you know, he eats uh, elk meat and he hunts and he fasts, therefore I should too. Um, mm. I had a couple of questions I mentioned to you before, before we started the call, uh, specifically to do with uh, neurodegenerative diseases, and I was hoping you could uh, lend your expertise. So you did mention one thing in your um, in your article, and it was the apparent anti-seizure benefits of, of ketogenic diets appear to be gut-related. So some people would argue that you're providing the brain with ketones, you're restricting addictive, you know, terrible for you sugar, and suddenly mm -hmm. the brain is regenerating and people are becoming healthy. What is the flaw with that thinking? Yeah, yeah, well, it's interesting you say that because then I remembered a bunch of other things that people say about, you know, from the low-carb side saying that, yeah sugar is addictive and yeah. causes leptin resistance and all that. Mm. So maybe we'll touch on that. But yeah. but yeah, so so there was a really interesting study showing that it had, I mean, basically showing that the ketogenic, the benefits of the ketogenic diet on seizures was entirely based on the effects on the gut. And they, I, I think it was a fecal transplant. So they did a transplant from rats that were on the ketogenic diet to rats that weren't on a ketogenic diet and they had the same benefits. Um, just just from basically transferring the gut microbiome from one to the other. So, which, yeah, does very much fly in the face of the idea that it's the ketones that are providing all those benefits and things like that. Um, not to say that I think that ketones can't be acutely beneficial. I mean, if yeah. someone's not metabolizing glucose well, then having ketones is better than not having ketones, mm. but that still doesn't make it ideal overall. Yeah. Um, I would say that restoring the ability to use the carbohydrates is a much better route. Yeah. So it's, it, it appears to be, yeah, again, it's just this kind of misunderstood, misguided thing of everyone's focused on the sugar and we've just kind of accepted that apparently sugar is bad and you couldn't, you can never question that. And so in this case, we've cut the sugar out. Therefore, this is why we're getting this benefit versus again, looking a bit deeper and understanding, um, because again, the, the, there's a, this other kind of sacred cow with, with gut health where we're supposed to think, well, fermentation and feeding bacteria is always going to be a good thing so um yeah it's it's a tough one to um to navigate uh, so the, the specific question i had sort of following from what you mentioned in your uh article and then we can maybe get on to the other things that you thought of with regards to sugar was um how would you explain this is probably the exact same answer but how might you explain <laughs> why ketogenic diets appear to be effective uh, for slowing down Alzheimer's and other neurodegenerative diseases? Yeah, so I think it would be for those same two reasons. Um, the one that was, you know, I said more clearly, which was that ketogenic diets reduce gut irritation. They reduce that gut toxin production because most things that people are eating that are feeding their bacteria are carbohydrates. Hmm. And most people don't have a properly balanced microbiome. So when they end up feeding it, they result, it results in a lot of different toxin production and things like that. Um, yeah. and that inhibits energy production and inhibits our ability to use carbohydrates. And that's what causes the whole diabetic state in the first place, which, you know, in regards to Alzheimer's, they talk about it as type three diabetes, where mm -hmm. it's an inability for the brain to use glucose properly and endotoxin is, and ammonia and, you know, metabolic toxins like that, that are produced from the gut 
are can be entirely responsible for that and they directly inhibit that process so um i think it can very clearly you know it, it is very clear that the gut irritation is a huge component there and then i do think kind of as i mentioned earlier is that if you can't metabolize carbs well then having ketones as a as an alternative fuel source is going to benefit you it's it's going it's better than having a bunch of carbs that you can't use yeah um, but it's not going to fix the problem that's for sure um, okay. and if you're produ- if you're relying on your own body to produce the ketones then it's also going to require a lot of stress because we don't produce those ketones unless we're in that stress state of low insulin and high stress hormones yeah um, which is that same diabetic state which is why hmm. you know we produce ketones in that state and everything like that but um but yeah, if you're taking them exogenously, you don't have that same stress going on in order to produce them. And in that case, it's just an alternate fuel. Um, so that I don't think is as problematic. But it, again, it's still avoiding the problem. It's not addressing what's yeah. really going on. Yeah. So it's sugar is not the issue. It's your inability to use sugar or carbs aren't the issue. Your inability mm-hmm. to. I often think of people like if someone had knee pain and they're like, squats are bad. Well, no, you have a problem with your knee and you, you know, it hurts to squat, but squats aren't inherently bad. Sure. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so do you want to kind of share your the thoughts that, that came up with regards to sugar and leptin and so on? Yeah. Yeah. So that it was definitely something that was pretty prominent on the the low carb side is all this trashing of, of sugar and carbohydrates. And one of the things there was this idea that this regulates our hunger systems. Um, so it causes us to overeat and we don't actually become full when we when we eat it because we're causing this leptin resistance and the idea is basically that this leptin resistance is similar to insulin resistance but leptin is just a hormone that controls or has a role in or it's a factor that affects i should say our hunger and so um the idea was that sugar causes problems there too but when we actually look at what affects hunger again it ends up on the energetic side so if we have enough atp in the certain areas or have enough energy in the certain areas that are responsible for our hunger signals then we don't get hungry. In other words, our, our hunger is determined by the amount of energy in certain areas of our brain and in our liver to an extent. So when we have enough energy in those places, which requires us producing energy very well, then our hunger signals turn off, which is a, you know, a perfect system. Mm. Um, when we're not producing energy well, maybe that's because we don't have enough carbohydrates and we're running on fat, or if it's because um, we aren't able to use the carbohydrates well that we are eating, then we continue to be hungry even if we do eat. And that's where kind of this leptin resistance comes in, where the leptin doesn't, the the cells don't respond properly to leptin if they don't have enough energy. So energy is, again, that main mediator there, where the leptin resistance, much like the insulin resistance, occurs because the cells aren't producing energy properly. And so it's, it's, yeah, it's a long way of saying sugar doesn't cause that issue. (laughs) At least not on its own. You know? Yeah. Are you sure? Are you sure? It looks like <laughs> cocaine. It must be bad. Okay. So was was that everything that kind of came up for you there that you wanted yeah. to mention? Yeah. yeah. And I mean, I don't, just as a disclaimer, I think that it's important to consider the different forms of sugar. We talked about grains earlier, mm. which is very different from the sugar itself isn't necessarily all that different from other foods. Um, yeah. And some, it's different from some, but so the, the sugar in fruit might be the same as the sugar in table sugar, but that doesn't mean that the effects are all the same because there's other aspects of fruit that make a difference. So mm. there's kind of a little disclaimer there. Yeah. Yeah. So um, as we begin to wrap up, what would be, so we've, you know, we've 
laid waste to all of these, uh, or tried to lay waste to all of these uh, <laughs> sacred cows of nutrition, what would be a practical and better option? You know, now that you've now that you've shattered everyone's dreams, <laughs> what might be a, a healthier uh, way to approach nutrition? In a nutshell. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Well, I mean. It might be shattering one dream, but we can replace it with another <laughs> one that includes eating carbs, which I think is a better dream because, yeah. at least for me, I I never enjoyed not eating them. So, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. So I do think that having a diet that has enough protein, um, yeah. that includes animal sources, but has those balanced amino acids, we we talked a little bit about um, one that has enough fats, but again we talked a little bit about the issues with the unsaturated fats, uh, yeah. specifically the polyunsaturated fats, which are in the nuts and seeds and their oils and in fatty fish uh, and in fatty chicken too, if it's not pastured and pork as well. Um, so sticking more towards the saturated fats there again, yeah. from the energetic perspective um, makes a huge difference. And we actually touched on a little bit of why that is. And it has to do with basically the fact that when the, when the unsaturated fats are, are used in the cells it inhibits our ability to produce energy well we just yeah. end up wasting a lot of it um and just as a quick um uh, kind of aside from that um the way I, I tend to think about it maybe this is oversimplified but thinking about the fats and their stability based on temperature uh, because uh, some people will hear this and think well saturated fat why you know i should be having fish oil so as a quick kind of um way of, of thinking about this is it fair to say that it's because of their instability at high heats and the body temperature being roughly 37 degrees celsius i'm not sure what that is in fahrenheit something crazy 98, in fahrenheit. About 98. <laughs> <laughs> um, you need celsius over there anyway um, <laughs> but is it fair to say that it is that instability at high temperatures oh, and it's reacting inside the the body's temperature that is part of the issue yeah, it's a, it's a huge part of the issue um, yeah. is that those unstable fats, which are liquids at room temperature, yeah. um, or at least more typically are liquid, mm -hmm. those ones are going to become damaged and that ends up damaging all sorts of, like it basically ends up damaging our body in the yeah. same way that if you heated it on a pan, it would damage the fats. And um, So yeah, so that's a huge part of it is the saturated fats are more stable. And then the other component of it too is that when we use them as a structural component, the saturated fats are just much better at holding energy and allowing us to produce energy. Whereas okay. the unsaturated ones basically cause us to waste that energy. It doesn't, it's not as efficient. Mm -hmm. And that's where that difference in metabolic rate comes from. Um, as far as the relative saturation of the fats in the cells that we talked about earlier with, with the, uh, the rate of living theory. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. I would say those are the two main things there. Yeah. Uh, we have a third uh, one, thing top three jay's top three <laughs> no <laughs> well then yeah well uh we could we could do that i mean it's easy to separate the macronutrients we got three yeah. of them. um we've got protein and fats down so on, yeah. on the carb side getting enough carbs is huge i would say favoring fruit sources is the best option so whether that's fruit juice or whole fruits um i'd say those are the best yeah and honey would probably fall somewhere near there too and and occasional table sugar depending on the context again um but then some of the carbs that i would stay away from would be the grains legumes beans um because of their anti-nutrients and yeah. and their lack of other benefits lack of other nutrients so uh yeah i would say that that's kind of the the basics yeah okay 
so there's hope there's light at the end of the tunnel we can have sugar and not feel bad um, right so someone listening to this they're thinking okay i've got a new way of looking at the world how can i learn more about your work jay how can i maybe work with you jay i gotta work with you <laughs> uh so i can be reached on my you know through my email or website uh website's probably easiest if you go to services on there uh, you can schedule a free call or check out i have an online course that's meant to kind of take you through the details of of the diet side step by step um and so yeah so that all that information is on there uh, my website's jfeldmanwellness.com and on facebook and instagram jfeldmanwellness and uh yeah i think I think that was everything. So, yeah, perfect. I'll include, of course, I'll include all the links in the show notes. Uh, I will include also the articles, parts one and two, uh, because there's some great reading in those. They're detailed, but really worth it. And all the, the little rabbit holes off from there are really, really beneficial. So um, anything else you'd like to add as we wrap up? No, no, I no. think that was it. Perfect. Thank you so much, Jay. That's been really, really beneficial. I hope, uh, hope that people get a lot out of this. So thank you so much for taking the time. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, PA. You're very welcome. So that was our chat with Jay Feldman. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope it was thought-provoking. I hope it maybe challenged your beliefs on nutrition, on various uh, interventions. I will say that um, I kind of struggled at the start. I'd prepared. I'd been reading the articles for a while and sort of preparing, and I had notes to kind of direct the flow of the conversation, but I drew a bit of a blank. So um, I feel like the start, like the main sort of maybe 15, 20 minutes of the podcast were a bit clunky on my part um, and, I, and I could have done better. So um, hopefully you found that towards the second half things picked up and we got better, uh, a better flow going with regards to information and it all made a bit more sense. Um, as I mentioned in the, in the discussion, if you want the really in-depth information, if you want to chase down the research, if you want to uh, check the information that uh, Jay is sharing, I've linked uh, his two original articles, uh, Hormesis Part 1 and 2, in the show notes. And that's going to give you uh, all the research and also a few important rabbit holes that sort of tie into this and will help explain uh, in more detail why um, avoiding carbohydrates might not be the best idea and why we want to keep uh, metabolism high uh, to improve uh, health. So... I hope you found the chat beneficial. If um, you're interested in the work that Jay is doing, you can sign up on his site. He's got a free kind of mini course to help deepen your understanding of these things. I've got links to that. And if you would like to work with him, he works uh, internationally online and I can't recommend him enough. So um, check out those links. If you enjoyed his appearance, if you enjoyed even his past appearances, if you've if you've been happy to have him or to hear him on this podcast, please let him know. Um, uh, the, I think uh, th that'll go a long way to kind of let him know that his his time has been well spent and, and that people are benefiting from, uh, from the, him putting in the time to do this. So thanks for listening. If you have any questions, as usual, let me know. If you want to work with Jay, all the links are there. Um, yeah, that's it. Thanks for watching and I'll see you in the next episode. Have a great day. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Physical Education Podcast. If you're the kind of person who likes to help others, then share this with someone in need. If you found value in the information here, they will too. So please share this in whatever way you can. If you have any questions, you can email me directly at pa at thebackpaincoach.net. I may even use your question for a future podcast episode. If you'd like more information to help you overcome pain, 
be sure to follow The Back Pain Coach on Instagram, Facebook and YouTube and to join my newsletter. The major turning points in my own recovery have come from changes in perception and through learning more about myself. I believe that we can help others by sharing information that expands their minds. Finally, I'd greatly appreciate if you could leave a positive review on iTunes or Stitcher so that others may find this information and you can play a positive role in their healing journey. Thanks again for listening.